Quarantine Collective reading of Anti-Oedipus. Today we're going to be continuing as we read through Section 5, The Machines. Uh, You can follow me along as I slowly, nicely scroll through the document. Uh, We are on page 59 of the PDF if you're using the one that we have shared. Uh, And we are on page 38 if you're following along the book text. I believe it's the Minnesota Press version. Um, few things of housekeeping, as always. I uh, want to put a call out there for volunteers. If you're looking to be a mod or an admin or join us in discussion or have many things to contribute, uh, you are more than welcome to uh, hit us up at admin, at mods, say hi. Uh, tell us that we are uh, great, what you can do, all that fun stuff. Uh, we have a couple things we've added to the server, as you can see, if you can go over to uh, the members list, we've added categories for people. How do you get one of these, you may ask. If you head up to the uh, uh, welcome section of our servers, the top link, uh, go ahead and choose the philosopher you identify the most with. Uh, we kind of are going to be using that uh, for the time being to at different groups of people who have different specialties. Uh People like myself who've read a lot of Zizek, other people who've read a lot of Foucault, it always helps to be able to say, hey, what's the Marxist view on this? Or if there's a question in the text that refers to something very particular, say Camus or Nietzsche, it's really nice to be able to go, hey, Nietzsche people, please help us, uh, because I'm not as versed in Nietzsche as a lot of people are. So uh, please do that. We also have a lovely little new feature uh, where we actually have server highlights and the discussion chat as you see people type things that are just excellent little comments. Uh, Go ahead and add a star emoji. Uh, Just add a reaction, choose the star, just star, and uh, that will actually just transfer it automatically up to server highlights so we can see the best things that are uh, there is a typo in Foucault. I know, I know, Craig's pointed it out and I can't edit that stupid thing. I know, I know. Um, but regardless, uh, it will be, uh, taking everyone's favorite little moments from the chat and tossing it into server highlights and, uh, just to sort of show people off what we're capable of here, which is pretty great. But, uh, that's, uh, the big stuff happening. Uh, please, as always, uh, chat in the, uh, discussion chat live, add follow-up questions, do anything you can to interact with us. We will happily unmute anyone, especially as we get into the discussion part of this. But for now... As always, I will pass it off to the lovely Craig, who's going to be hosting us as we start this chat through Section 5, The Machines. Great. I liked your voice there at the end, too, Brooks. Um, I'm going to, I I think it's always important to recap a little bit just before we get started. Um, I I don't want to make the assumption that somebody's here for the second or third time. Maybe we have some newcomers who uh, are listening. And I thought maybe a good way to do this was just to reference the fact that in many of the interviews that Deleuze and Gattari have done, they've rendered these concepts in I, what I would think is a much more readable and approachable manner, but you know, devoid of some of the nuance. And what I'll do right now is just post a little quote that I found in the book of Gattari essays, <clears throat> uh, Soft Subversions. It's the text and interviews from 1977 to 1985. And I'll just throw it in here. And in case somebody isn't reading, I will read this aloud. Um, this is on their theory of desire. And so the question was put to Gattari, what do you mean by desire? And he says, for Gilles Deleuze and me, desire is everything that exists before 
the opposition between subject and object before representation and production. It's everything whereby the world and affects constitute us outside of ourselves, in spite of ourselves. It's everything that overflows from us. That's why we define it as flow. And that's going to be one of the things that we're talking specifically about today. Within this context, we were led to forge a new notion in order to specify in what way this kind of desire is not some sort of undifferentiated magma and thereby dangerous, suspicious, or incestuous. So we speak of machines, of desiring machines, in order to indicate that there is as yet no question here of structure, that is, of any subjective position objective redundancy, or coordinates of reference. I really like those um, three terms they have right there. Uh, machines arrange and connect flows. They do not recognize distinctions between persons, organs, material flows, and semiotic flows. And perhaps that last sentence is going to be the most relevant one today. Um, before we get started, too, um, once again, we're up against some new conceptual terminology, and I offer a bit of advice that comes from my teacher of Deleuze and Gattari. His name's Jay Conway, and maybe he'll be here someday. Um, I think it's always important to be on the lookout for the way that Deleuze and Gattari use conceptual language that is familiar to other thinkers, uh, but we should always be aware of making a direct equivalence between their use of a particular word and that other thinkers use of it. And there's one word that comes out right off the bat here, and that word's Heil, which um, if you read philosophy as an undergrad or a grad, or if you're a big fan of Aristotle, you know that this concept is, is used in Aristotle. Um, I think there's a risk uh, of losing the nuance that they've added to the word, however, if we stray too far from the page and like look, for example, like, what did Aristotle mean by Heil? Of course, that's going to be important to our understanding of it. But whenever Deleuze and Gattari bring something like that in, you can rest assured that they are, they are nuancing in a way to fit the concepts that they're creating. Um, also, another important thing, we have a lot of people reading secondary lit out there, the Holland book um, and others. I think we should ask ourselves whenever we look at the secondary literature, um, what is it? that the um, interpreters have dodged? What have they left alone? Or what are some points that they waffled on a bit? I mean, even who I think are some of the greatest interpreters of, of Deleuze and Guattari, uh, like uh, Gary Janosko, who's done a lot of work on Guattari, there are parts in his uh, rendering of Guattari's theory where I'm like, you basically just said what Guattari said in another way and really didn't elaborate the point that he made, to me anyway, sufficiently, uh, to prove to me that you understand what he said. And and I basically, I would say, don't take it for granted that these uh, secondary lit interpreters know exactly what they're talking about on every point. And some of these things, they're, they're trying to sidestep and, and skirt around. Um, so with that said, um, let's let us be the interpreters of this text and let's find some places where these uh, secondary lit authors um, haven't elaborated upon. Um, I looked at John Pratevi's outline of Anti-Oedipus uh, just last night, and he really skimps on this section. And I think there's a lot that's going on. Andrew and I were talking about this. There's a lot of notes about psychoanalysis that I think are really important to the understanding. Uh, Will in uh, 
our discussion on Saturday said something that, that really struck me. He said, whenever an author puts forward an example in the text, you hold on to that example because that example for them, it, it, the example that we're coming across today is paradigmatic uh, in relation to their concept of desire. And the example I'm talking about is the uh, boy in Bettelheim study. So when we get there, I think we should we should dive into that a little more deeply. Um, before we get started on the text, are there any admins or anybody who's online right now who'd like to make any comments about this reading of the text or something that stood out to them? Or, or I'm I'm here. I'm I'm calling out Andrew and others. No. All right. Shall we continue? Uh, let's uh, go. Let's just start reading this text. So, uh, I'll just... sorry, sorry, Craig. I was muted. Uh, oh, okay. Myself like oh. an idiot. Um, for me, the and I mentioned it a little bit in how we were prepping. One of the things I really like about this chapter, aside from the shortness overall, is it feels like they are being a lot more specific and concrete in how they're talking about these things. Because machines earlier in this book have been talked about, we'll say, more poetically and lightly, and this gets a lot more into specificity around the things, which I really enjoyed. Great. What I like about this section, just <clears throat> building off of this, is that it really feels like a section which belongs at the end of this chapter. And uh, when we finish this chapter, I think we will really grasp uh, why this section was so important. And why it is, is that it offers a kind of recapitulation of all of the concepts, or at least many of the concepts that we've been offered so far, right? In a, as Brooks said, more practical way. And they'll try to get into this as we go along. That, no, that's I, basically, I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, anybody else before we start? All right. Well, let's, uh, let's just break into the text right now. Um, I will do the first paragraph, and then um, after that, we'll break it down. Uh, chapter five. So we are on page 38 in the actual text. Um, and oh, I'm sorry. 50, yeah. Yeah. 38 in the actual text, and then 59 in the PDF. Section five the machines. <clears throat> in what respect are desiring machines really machines? In anything more than a metaphorical sense. A machine may be defined as a system of interruptions or breaks. These breaks should in no way be considered as a separation from reality. Rather, they operate along lines that vary according to whatever aspect of them we are considering. Every machine in the first place is related to a continual material flow, Heil, that it cuts into. It functions like a ham slicing machine, removing portions from the associative flow. The anus and the flow cuts off. For instance, the mouth that cuts off not only the flow of milk, but also the flow of air and sound. The penis that interrupts not only the flow of urine, but also the flow of sperm. Each associative flow must be seen as an ideal thing, an endless flux, flowing from something not unlike the immense thigh of a pig. The term hyle, in fact, designates the pure continuity that any one sort of matter ideally possesses. When Robert Jolin describes the little balls and pinches of snuff used in certain initiation ceremony, he shows that they are produced each year as a sample taken from an infinite series that theoretically has one and only one origin, a single ball that extends to the very limits of the universe. 
Far from being the opposite of continuity, the break or interruption conditions this continuity. It presupposes or defines what it cuts into as an ideal continuity. This is because, as we have seen, every machine is a machine of a machine. The machine produces an interruption of the flow only insofar as it is connected to another machine that supposedly produces this flow. And doubtless, this second machine, in turn, is really an interruption or break too. But it is such only in relationship to a third machine that ideally, that is to say relatively, produces a continuous infinite flux. For example, the so, anus- Craig, I'm actually yeah. going to interrupt. Uh, in, in chat, can we get everyone just add a reaction to Misha if you've lost the stream or if you've been disconnected? It seems we're having a few issues with Discord really quick. Sorry, Craig. Oh, that's okay. I want to see if we can fix this. Uh, oh, yeah, it's a couple people. Screen looks black to me. Wonderful. Let me let me restart. Sorry, guys. It's okay. <laughs> I just want to ask anyone who's been watching uh, press conference today. He's. I feel like this is exactly what he's trying to say. All right. Uh, to, there we go. Someone... We're working. Um, uh, Afshin, uh, Zarathustra, I, I, I heard you, but I didn't catch everything you said. My mic testing. Can you hear me, guys? Yeah, uh, you're kind of you're kind of cutting uh, in. Uh, I don't know what to do. I'm gonna just mute That's myself better. then. No, no, you're good. You just go for it. Good. Okay. To continue this theme that I was just hearing from you from this book, that Cuomo was saying exactly what you're describing. How everyone was asking him how he's gonna restart the economy when he's asking. How can you reach the economy without trains working, without without the uh, schools opening, without all these other businesses needing uh, required from 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 the society at, at large? So you know, the bigger question is, how can you restart the economy when you don't have these other aspects going at the same time? So I don't know if that's tangential or congruent to what you're saying, but I feel like this is exactly what. Cuomo has been trying to uh, explain to everyone at the at the at his press conferences over the last few days. Oh, so. you know, when when we start talking about the example of Bettelheim, which in a few pages, I have copious notes here that talk about the coronavirus situation because the whole distinction between product production and desiring production uh, bears directly to what we're going through right now in the world. So we we can nice. we can definitely draw upon that as an example. Um, uh, All right, Craig. I think we got it. I think we got it fixed. You uh, probably start a little bit, uh, a few set sentences earlier, so you can get sure. back into the passions of it. Apologies. Yes. All right. Yeah, we'll do it. Um, okay. So I will start. Um, the machine produces an interruption. It's kind of uh, at the in the middle of the page, almost in the middle of the page, more towards the lower half. The machine produces an interruption of the flow only insofar as it is connected to another machine that supposedly produces this flow. And doubtless, this second machine, in turn, is really an interruption or break too. But it is such only in relationship to a third machine that ideally, that is to say, relatively produces a continuous infinite flux. For example, the anus machine and the intestine machine, the intestine machine and the stomach machine, the stomach machine and the mouth machine, the mouth machine and the flow of milk of a herd of dairy cattle, 
and then, and then, and then. In a word, every machine functions as a break in the flow in relation to the machine to which it is connected, but at the same time is also a flow itself or the production of a flow in relation to the machine connected to it. This is the law of the production of production. Whoa, take note. Here's a law in philosophy. We, we have to come back to that. That is why at the limit point of all the transverse of uh, or transfinite connections, the partial object and the continuous flux, the interruption and the connection fuse into one. Everywhere, there are breaks, flows, out of which desire wells up, thereby constituting its productivity and continually grafting the process of production onto the product. It is very curious that Melanie Klein, whose discovery of partial objects was so far-reaching, neglects to study flows from this point of view and declares that they are of no importance. She thus short-circuits all the connections. And we end here with a, uh, a critique of psychoanalysis yet again, not going far enough. Um, I've read a lot. I've talked a lot. Let's have some other people get in on this. What, what, what do we make of this section? What are the questions that we have? Um, like what, what stands out to you as the most important section uh, or sentence here? Um, here? Here's my thing. First sentence. Um, in what respects are desiring machines really machines? Anything more than a, a metaphorical sense? Answer, they're not metaphors. Um, right, they're real. Yeah, they're, the, these are real things. Yeah, go ahead. There's really what this dichotomy later turns into, right? This dichotomy between real and metaphorical machines later goes into breaks and continuation, which we will see in the losing of Tari, of course, prioritize breaks in the production of in these in this real productions so how do this how do these breaks work is, is the question and why are they so essential yeah the concept yeah, of the concept. desire that they're formulating is prior to representation so there there right. is no metaphor here and 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 we need to dig deeper to find out what that means um <clears throat> here's a question in what way is a break not a break from reality is the thing that they want to point out. The way in which, for example, a sign or a signifier can be strewed as a break from reality, but actually a conditioning of or a articulation of the, the continuity. Um, one of the ways that, that I, I kind of um, imagine this is like one of those balloons that you can turn into like a, a wiener dog. Um, if you're to twist that balloon and effectively creating a break, you create a sort of like elbow of pliability, right? Now this balloon can move in certain ways in virtue of the break that it couldn't when it didn't have that break, but nonetheless, it remains a continuous balloon. So this is one of the, the, the sort of metaphors that I'm using to, to articulate. Um, yeah, I mean, I think is that like the reality can't actually Break. So the kind of appearance of the break is actually whatever is the necessary result of enforcing that continuity. Or perhaps well, like origami. The bend, then the break, yeah, or a fold. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. Oh, can you say more about origami, Owen? Um, I mean, 
I mean, one, 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 I was doing origami the other day, and one of the ways I think about it is that when you think about like production in the form of production of art, people think of like, <laughs> like sculpture is removing things and getting something, and painting is adding things and getting something. But Deleuze and Guattari are focusing on when you simply, simply crease things without adding or removing anything and still get something and still produce something new. Yeah. No, that's great. And why this, these breaks really make an important point here is because of the de-hierarchized nature of these machines, uh, by, right? And precisely because there is no hierarchization between them is this kind of continuation without breaks and implausible solution to them, right? They cannot work by continuous, but by an absence of breaks, just because there there is no hierarchy between them, just because one machine is the continuation of some other machine, and that machine is in turn a continuation of, of one other machine, right? Um, another important point that we've gone over in previous sections uh, were a few things, um, and I saw this in, in recent discussions on the server, this idea of the production being grafted into the product, um, even when we talk about, uh, for example, the socius falling back upon all productive activity, those notions of, of being grafted upon, falling back onto... Uh, bear directly to this discussion of breaks. Um, because a break is not construed as a break in reality, it's instead construed as um, a point at which it, the flow of reality becomes conditioned. So I think that's just another word that we want to put in the lexicon right now, conditioning, grafting, falling back upon. I, I think that, that will help clear up some of the questions that we have about that. I thought in the past about the metaphor, I've brought it up with the metaphor of the whirlpool or like a vortex in a river as well, because I feel that they, you know, when we're talking about flows, it's really hard to visualize sometimes, but I think it's quite intuitive to think about the ways that water flows in a river. And that, that sentence that we highlighted before that the uh, machine produces an interruption of the flow only insofar as it is connected to another machine that supposedly produces this flow. Uh, I think it's a, it's a good mental image in the sense that you can't obviously the, the vortex or the whirlpool, even in so much as it's a, an absence of, you know, space in the middle of the water, it, you know, it, it still requires, it presupposes the water flowing around it and breaking off of it in order to make constitute what we see as a gap. So there's no, you know, separation between those flows in a sense. In, in Deleuze and Gattari's, uh, I think it's in a thousand plateaus. Uh, in their discussion of intensities, they use the example of a hurricane to to describe very much what you're talking about too. So that was a very apt notice. Anything else on that part? Uh, I'd like to mention something, which is that uh, you know in Euclidean geometry, uh, there's uh, you use a compass and a straight edge <clears throat> to do the proofs. And uh, one of the things that they've uh, that's been mentioned with respect to origami is that there are certain problems that cannot be solved within the structure of Euclidean geometry just using a straight edge and a compass. But those problems can be solved if they picked up the parchment they were drawing on and folded it like it was origami. 
There, origami can solve problems that cannot be solved in um, in in the in the structure of Euclidean geometry. And so I think that that's an important uh, point to try to get a sense of why is the origami important. It's important because it's actually a, a structurally a, uh, a stronger um, uh, mathematical uh, way of solving problems. That's interesting. I didn't, uh, I'm going to Google that right now. Computation of origami. And see what uh, come up with. Yeah, um, there are there are some things on that. And then the other thing is that I, I'm not sure if it's in here or or the last chapter. He talks about the um, the purloined letter. Yeah, that's a great great part. Yeah. And so the purloined letter is an origami. And yes. and Shit. and one of the things that I was amazed by was that if you read the story by Alan, Edgar Allan Poe, uh, you know, it's kind of like the first detective story, um, uh, and, and you compare it to what Lacan says, uh, Lacan, you know, I mean, he gets, he, he's talking about it in a very structural way, and he gets the structure of the, um, uh, the relationships between the people, but uh, the, the letter itself is folded. And and is is a, a a piece of origami, and so I think that is a case of Poe uh, going further than the analyst that's uh, interpreting the story. Yeah, and and yeah, we when we get to that part, they they don't really um, articulate all of that here, but it seems that for Lacan that that the story of the purloined letter. Um, is is very important because for him it's an affirmation of his theory of lack whereas um for Deleuze and Gattari and and like I said they don't elaborate it much here but we can infer that the kinds of quote unquote lack that are experienced in that story are constructive developments in the context of the story it's not that there is an inherent lack anywhere but the the obfuscation of the address on the letter and those things are all what contributes to the mystery of the story. Another thing uh, that uh, should be noted is that when in in of grammatology, uh, when Derrida um, is describing the trace, he also uses the term hinge, and so the the kind of folds in the in the origami are are like hinges. And 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 you see that when you make that fold, and, and what's happening is that one piece is falling back onto the other piece on the other side of the fold. That's very interesting. And the literal French translation of that subsection that is translated in English by the word hinge is actually breaking, right? And it really, yeah, it makes sense. It is uh, the word is I think la briseur or something like that. Hmm. You can also yeah. think of it from like a Newtonian physics perspective, where the like hinges are these redirections of the flow, so you have to break their kind of natural behavior somehow and act on them. The interesting line here that that connects to what we're talking about at the end of this paragraph, where they say, "Everywhere there are breaks, flows out of which desire wells up." 
thereby thereby constituting its productivity and continually grafting the process. The interesting word there for me is wells up because it, it suggests like a surge or an affirmation. It's this is very anti-dialectical. A break is not a negation. In fact, it it's the 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 very ontological structure, if you were the, the ontological um, node by which desire becomes um, evident or it becomes uh, salient in some way. And, and, and just, just to quickly go to the whole coronavirus thing, like just the, the idea of a quarantine is not a negation. It's actually the construction of a new kind of fold or a new break, if you will. That is that is constructive in its own way, but from the standpoint of the global capitalist economy, I really like that. Also, the like image of the the folded fabric of the quarantine tent going along with that. Yeah, yeah. I like I like to add on to that. I like to add on to that because uh, we just there was a mention of uh, genealogy of morals, and my favorite section of the book was. Essay two of section two, where Nietzsche talks about the sovereign man. It's a very delicate sub. He, he one needs to understand Nietzsche writes in a rhetorical way, and people took some people take that essay too literally, and it is just my interpretation that pointing out that there is no such thing as a sovereign man. As a conscious, you cannot interrupt. You can't cleave yourself away from the from the society as a whole and take yourself as something that's independent from everything else. Because by doing, you're just you're acting as if there is a situation where you can you can find yourself isolated from everything around you to the point where you're not affected by anything at all. And I feel like this is something that takes and, and makes it more. What needs to be able to talk you're kind more of, about that section that, you're kind of breaking up. I, I mean, yeah, you, you're some some of the sentences are inaudible, like completely. Uh, well, I'll, I'll you know if anyone, I'll just say this: one is interested in uh, uh, discussing this in relation to genealogy and morals. I'll be more than happy to do so. Sounds like another talk that we can have. What I would like to add to this, and just skipping towards the end of this paragraph we've just read, is a bit of context on the Kleinian theory, right, that they reference, and why it poses a huge juxtaposition here in their theory of flows and in the theory of of breaks in the machines. And here I'm quoting from Laplanche's and Pontalis's Language of Psychoanalysis. It's a great book. I recommend you all check it out if you're having doubts about some of the concepts. And they say, in Klein's use of part object, object is meant in its fullest psychoanalytic sense. Though partial, the object, breast or other part of the body, is endowed in fantasy with traits comparable to a person's to a person's example. It can be persecutory, reassuring, benevolent, etc. And why this is so interesting to me is because <clears throat> Klein, of course, as they say here, it doesn't offer any kind of connection between these uh, partial objects. And even if this connection is um, is put forward, it is, again, really, really sterile. And why this is important 
and why it seems important to me at least is because uh, for Deleuze and Gattari, all of these partial objects that Klein correctly identifies cannot work outside uh, of the complex structure of the uh, the subject, let's say, right? Because they all work to, together, and, and all of these uh, partial objects, machine, machines, let's call them, right, continually break between each other, as they uh, say, right, Aegis machine, etc. Yeah, and therefore not being a fully materialist critique, or not being a fully materialist psychiatry. Right. Um, shall we move on to the next section? Yeah. <clears throat> right. Andrew, do you want to read that? Yeah, I can do that. So, Connecticut, connect, I cut, cries little Joey. In his study, The Empty Fortress, Bruno Battleheim paints the portrait of the, this young child who can live eat, defecate, and sleep only if he's plugged into machines provided with motors, wires, lights, carburetors, propellers, and steering wheels, an electrical feeding machine, a car machine that enables him to breathe, an anal machine that lights up. There are very few examples that cast as much light on the regime of desiring production and the way in which breaking down constitutes an integral part of this function, or the way in which the cutting off is an integral part of mechanical connections. Doubtless, there are those who will object that this mechanical schizophrenic life expresses the absence and the destruction of desire rather than desire itself. It presupposes certain extremely negative attitudes on the part of his parents to which the child reacts by turning himself into a machine. But even Battleheim, who has a noticeable bias in favor of Oedipal or pre-Oedipal causality, admits that this sort of causality intervenes only in response to autonomous aspects of the productivity or the activity of the child, although he later discerns him in a non-productive stasis or an attitude of total withdrawal. Hence, there is first of all, according to Bettelheim, an autonomous reaction to the total life experience of which the mother is only a part. Also, we must not think that the machines themselves are proof of the loss of oppression of desire, which Bettelheim translates in terms of autism. We find ourselves confronted with the same problem once again. How has the process of the production of desire, how have the child's desiring machines begun to turn endlessly round and round in a total vacuum so as to produce the endlessly uh, so as to produce the child machine? How has the process turned into an end itself? Or how has the child become the victim of a premature interruption or a terrible frustration? It is only by means of the body without organs, eyes closed tight, nostrils pinched shut, ears stopped up, that something is produced, counterproduced, something that diverts or frustrates the entire process of production, of which it is nonetheless still a part. But the machine remains desire an investment of desire whose history unfolds by way of the primary repression and the return of the repressed and the succession of the, the states of paranoiac machines, miraculating machines, and celibate machines through which little Joey passes as Bettelheim's therapy progresses. Right. So, so being that this is the paradigmatic example, and, and Andrew, you, it sounds like you've been looking at this um, pretty right. closely. <clears throat> I kind of... Yeah. So, what what's the deal with these, um, the 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 car and the motor? And did you, so, did you have any insight yeah. in that example? Yeah. So, Bellheim, a I think German psychologist who spent most of his working career in America, working on child schizophrenia, right? What it was labeled then, and what 
we now could translate as kind of, the kind of autism developed in a book he titled Joey, a Mechanical Boy, a theory or a case study of sorts, right? This uh, boy who apparently, or who believed he couldn't sleep or whatever, do, do his basic, fulfill his basic needs without being in a way connected to many machines being uh, connected by certain vi wires to other machines, etc. Some of these machines were really there, right? They were existing. He really used some napkins, wires to connect to connect himself to, to his bed or to his um, socket in his room. And some of them, some of those uh, cables, for instance, were purely imaginary. But the way Battleheim interpreted this <clears throat> is very interesting, right? And he's famous for <clears throat> for um, exemplifying the double bind, which was a popular theory back in the 50s and later, right? And, and he developed this theory of refrigerator mothers, mm. is what, to which Deleuze and Gattari touch upon here. And, and what refrigerator mother, mothers uh, actually stand for is a kind of neglectful mother figures, right, who neglectful mother figures who produce this child schizophrenia essentially in their children, right, by this, uh, <clears throat> by this mechanical treatment. And uh, Belheim actually in his book says, quote, by treating him mechanically, his parents made him a machine. And this really uh, sums up how Belheim encapsulates himself in this edible triangle, mm -hmm. right? But in a lot of ways, he distanced himself from it as the uh, doesn't got to reanalyze in this paragraph, right? Yeah. So <clears throat> I, I want to um, address the, the notion that Bettelheim is coming from an Oedipalized or an Oedipal perspective. It says here, but even Bettelheim, who has a noticeable bias in favor of Oedipal or pre-Oedipal causality, admits that this sort of causality intervenes only in response to the autonomous aspects of the productivity or the activity of the child, etc. Um, there's a few things that I, I want to unbox here. Just the notion of, of coming from an Oedipal presupposition, uh, or from the position of pre, uh, Oedipally presupposing um, something, and also this notion of autonomous aspects of productivity. Um, how could we uh, unpack that a little bit? What does it mean that Be Bettelheim is Oedipal or has an Oedipal bias? <clears throat> with respect to this case? Well, uh, of course, as I'm uh, trying to emphasize, one of the main, uh, one of the main things Bettelheim attributed Joey's condition to was his mother, right? Mm. The relation <clears throat> between the mother and the child. And, right. and not going into the, the many case studies which were developed in America and in post-war America when many kids grew up without fathers, right? A lot of this uh, just goes into this, but I, I can't really comment because I'm not too sure on, on these specific cases. But what happened with Joey is actually <clears throat> a mixture of this, right? Uh, Belheim correctly identified this and later treated it as pure schizophrenia. And uh, he, I think, led Joey to being, uh, quote unquote, completely cured at age 12, being a normal boy, right? Which didn't feel like he needed to be uh, connected to, to, to wires, et cetera. But it was a long, long process. Right? Right. Now, Deleuze and Gattari seem to want to emphasize that the um, 
the autonomous reaction to the total life experience and also the the child's um, experience of a non-productive stasis are actually uh, a productive attitude. And it seems that what the therapist is trying to elicit is from, from the child is the kind of uh, connectivity with the world coming from an Oedipal framework uh, that brings them back into reality and attempts to form them as a subject as we understand a good subject to be uh, within our reality. Um, what is it exactly that, um, and then uh, in conjunction with that, also we must not think that the machines themselves are proof of the loss or repression of desire, which Bettelheim translates in terms of autism. Um, what they're saying here seems to be that this experience of autism has been negatively cast, but there is actually a positive, productive aspect to it. Would that be correct? Right. And this, uh, I fully agree. And this is one of the aspects I think Bettelheim, in his process, affirmed. Maybe uh, not directly, but definitely by respecting Joey's process, right? Because he worked with him for, for a long time, right? Right. <laughs> and uh, all of these machines that Joey was uh, producing and Joey was, uh, I don't know, connecting to himself, he was not violently opposed to, to, to this uh, action. He wasn't, right? What I'm trying to say is Belheim wasn't really a uh, classic reductionist psychologist okay. from what I've understood. And it seems that the, the example that they've highlighted here um, also uh, is an apt metaphor for the body without organs. Um, the child, yeah. in virtue of the connection with these, these cars and motors for the wires and napkins, that's analogous to the kinds of connections that we make in uh, as as good subjects under whatever system we're living under, whether it's the you know the pre-modern society, the despotic society, or, or society under capitalism, um, by introducing those machines um, to to the, the the child or the patient or what have you, you can elicit some regularity or at least some conformity to the subjective mold that we understand to be the ideal mold in our society. But absent those things, the child retreats to this non-productive stasis, or even retreat suggests lack, perhaps, but um, moves into this non-productive stasis that's analogous to the body without organs, where all these connections are rejected. Would, would you think that, do you think that's accurate, Andrew? Right. I feel like, yeah. Okay. I mean, I, I can get behind that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, all but, right. What I really... Um just wanted to to say before we move on it, it is a certain aspect of technical machines being here further and in examples incorporated less as antagonistic to humans and more as their complementarities what simone then actually did uh, 10 or 15 years earlier right with his book on the mode of existence of technical objects uh, just quick background, he, he opposed the dominant Heideggerian idea of mm -hmm. technology as being antagonistic. And BNG really here seemed to, in the case of psychiatry, and as we've seen before, really seemed to take this idea further and really totally abjure this antagonistic relationship, which is interesting. 
I, I think the last sentence here too is very important um, in this paragraph. But the machine remains desire and investment of desire whose history unfolds by the way of primary repression. And here Deleuze and Gattari have a, a little bit of a different definition for primary repression. Um, we talked about earlier, and the return of the repressed in the succession of the states of paranoiac machines, miraculating machines, and celibate machines through which little Joey passes as Bettelheim's therapy progresses. Um, one of the ways that I'm reading this is um, when it comes to the development of our own subjectivity, there is an implementation or an imposition of all of these different kinds of paranoiac machines, miraculating machines, and celibate machines, some small, some large, the largest of them being in our society, uh, the body of capital, right? But um, within um, the institution of the family, institution of school, institution of government, we have other kinds of paranoiac, miraculating, and celibate machines that all inform the creation of subjectivity. Does anybody else want to get in there? Are there is there something in the paragraph that stood out to you or an important connection that you made? I'm like a little um, confused about why the body without organs is being associated with something productive here, not anti-productive. Um, I think... Yeah, there there could be a, a slight equivocation at work here. I mean, it's it's part of the total productive a- apparatus for sure. Mm-hmm. Its function is different. Um, it's one of of creating disjunctions. But if we remember, um, their notion of the the full body without organs is one in which um, all of the uh, all of the productive flows are rejected that all are seen as as an attempt to break through the body without organs. And um, in the analogy here, the, the child in the non-productive state is um, an instantiation of that. That's the way that I'm reading it. There yeah. might be a detail that I'm missing I, there. I about. just came up with a good picture of that. Like the full body without organs is like a, a if you imagine like a circuit diagram with just a, a break in every, uh, you know, every. Yeah. Uh, but, every second. Um, if you're talking about this first sentence on the, the next page, right? I don't know what page it is. It's uh, 38. Page 38, yeah. There is, seems to be a kind of a discrepancy between the two productions in the first two lines, right? That something is produced, counterproduced, and something that diverts or frustrates the entire process of previous production. These uh, two two productions here just seem kind of disparate to me. And I wonder why that is. Maybe uh, even though this is sort of off the page a little bit, um, one of the things that's at work here are the ethics and the politics. W- what they're highlighting is, hey, look what anti-production can do. It has the right. yeah. That's what I was thinking. There is a political uh, yeah. The, they they so want to say that there is there is a state in which. Um, if utilized correctly, or if understood correctly, or at least sufficiently, that we could um, uh, impose kinds of anti-production to upset or frustrate things, you know, right. in order to create something new. And I always kind of keep that in the back of my mind when they when they talk about anti-production, even though that's not explicitly what they're talking about. I think there's 
they're 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 talking metaphysics here, right? It's, real quick, it's worth uh, for a few people who are joining us more recently. Uh, anti-production. What is it? Okay. Uh, just real quick, Craig, if you can give a quick definition <clears throat> of anti-production. So uh, basically, there's a for any creation of um, uh, in any. So basically, the the field of desire is the production of connections. Um, when we talk about desire, it's basically an incessant production of con- connections. However, anything that's formed, uh, according to Deleuze and Gattari, in any sort of configuration, suffers from the configuration in which it it is, and one one of the things that establishes that antagonism is this notion of the body without organs anything that's organized in a certain way suffers from that organization such that the there's an impulse to disorganize and that is one of the ways that we can talk about anti-production a concrete way to look at anti-production is for example in a world and under global capitalism uh, that is now devoid of all the frontiers of exploration where every continent has been explored, demarcated, and mined, once the the field of connections loses frontiers uh, by which to continue the production of productions under capitalism, it needs something else in order to produce more capital. That could be the creation of poverty. That could be the creation of war and all of the, the, the sort of things that we can, in conventional terms, think of as negatives. Like, oh, why, why does war exist in the world? Well, for one thing, it benefits the capitalist. Why is there poverty here and there's affluence over here? Well, because that benefits the, the capitalist. Why is there uh, economic stratification? Well, because it benefits capital. Right. And all those negative aspects um, in Deleuze and Gattari's view are seen as a positive, which they call anti-production. Thank you, sir. Uh, Craig, I have yes. another question about anti-production. It looks like we're going to talk about recording coming up. Uh-huh. So with anti-production, let's say like the child's mouth and the breast and how that's a production or a machine there. And then when it stops, um, it's sort of like an anti-production. But then we always have that recording on the body without organs that makes it come back again. Metaphysically, I'm struggling a bit with what the recording is. I sort of imagine like a a burning on like the egg of the body without organs. But then I thought the body without organs is supposed to be smooth um, without any sort of thing on it. So I'm wondering, where is that recording? What is it? It's not a machine, right? Okay, uh, I want to connect what I just said to to your question. Um, Brooks, in one of the previous uh, discussions, uh, pointed out that when we talk about anti-production, we talk about uh, forms of repression. Now, where do forms of repression come from? They're they're created as well. And in order for something to be repressed, it has to there has to be some sort of encoding uh, of desire. You can go this way, but you can't go that way. You can partake in this pleasure, but you can't partake in this one. If you have a penis, the penis goes inside here. It doesn't go inside there, right? Um, If you are called a man, you do these sorts of things, right? You don't do these sorts of things. And all of those um, repressions constitute forms of recording desire, which uh, exclude some connections and privilege others. So maybe one of the ways of thinking about recording is there, there's a way in which 
uh, body without organs, large and small, condition those um, uh, those functions. They they condition those privileged um, recordings, privileged semiotics, and exclude others. So that's maybe that's it's that's kind of a quick and dirty on more than one count way of uh, looking at it. But um, that's that's the way that I think we can think about recording in this context. It's a, one of the metaphors someone explained to me. I don't know if it's actually accurate, but it helped me understand it. So I guess we'll find out is uh, when we think about recording in this context, uh, we shouldn't think about it in terms of how modern recording works, but instead how records work. And as things happen on a flat sheet of vinyl, let's say, uh, and the needle goes around, when things are happening over and over and they become standard and rote in the society, those grooves get deeper. Things not in those grooves uh, don't really make an impact. It's these deep, deep sections is where desiring production happens and classic production happens. And anywhere that's not in a very deep groove is recorded less and and more tends towards anti-production is that a fair analogy yeah, yeah. there I, I i think so um i mean even just the way that advertising works when i see the commercial for juicy fruit gum uh, i'm i automatically associate that with taking my my jeep to the beach uh with skiing down an alpine slope right anything that produces a kind of connection and um like you said brooks like like deepens that connection over time. Hey, that fun things are associated with this product. And then think about too, for example, uh, Coca-Cola or Pepsi, was it? I mean, we live in a world mm-hmm. now that has co-opted protest, that has co-opted dissent um, as a note in um, in advertising. I, I think if you remember the commercial that I'm talking about, like, hey, you know what's one, one thing that's rebellious, one thing that's revolutionary is drinking Pepsi. And that that's that also gets recorded into the the, the commodity of 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 Pepsi. And it's understanding that these things uh, are constantly being recorded, and those grooves are constantly deepening with every action and everything that's happening. And it's it's inscribed upon capital because, and they use that word inscribed. It's why I like the idea of thinking of it as a record, uh, because then it ends up the the way things play is very expected. It's very repetitive. It's very uh, Uh, repeatable and stepping outside of that produces nothing or static or anti-production as you may say so when we actually are doing things that are breaking those flows and we're we're stepping outside of those very normal bounds uh it's a really and it's uh, actually if you want i can just dive in and start reading the next paragraph because we're already talking about it um In the second place, every machine has a sort of code built into it, stored up inside it. This code is inseparable, not only from the way in which it is recorded and transmitted to each of the different regions of the body, but also from the way in which the relations of each of the regions with all the others are recorded. An organ may have connections that associate it with several different flows. It may waver between several functions and even take on the regime of another organ, the anorectic mouth, for instance. All sorts of functional questions thus arise. What flow to break? Where to interrupt it? How and by what means? What place should be left for other producers or anti-producers? The place of one's little brother, for instance. Should one or should one not suffocate from what one eats? Swallow air? shit with one's mouth. The data, the bits of information recorded in their transmission, form a grid of disjunctions of a type that differs from the previous connections. 
We owe to Jacques Lacan the discovery of this fertile domain of a code of the unconscious, incorporating the entire chain, or several chains, of meaning, a discovery thus totally transforming analysis. Uh, the purloined letter, I think, actually kept mentioned earlier. Uh, wonderful text. Uh, but how very strange this domain seems, simply because of its multiplicity. A multiplicity so complex that we can scarcely speak of one chain or even one code of a desire. The chains are called signifying chains because they are made up of signs. But these signs are not themselves signifying. The code resembles not so much a language as a jargon, an open-ended, polyvocal formation. The nature of the signs within it is insignificant, as these signs have little or nothing to do with what supports them. Or rather, isn't the support completely immaterial to the signs? The support is the body without organs. These indifferent signs follow no plan, they function at all levels and enter into any and every sort of connection. Each one speaks its own language and establishes synthesis with others that are quite direct along traverse vectors, whereas the vectors between the basic elements that constitute them are quite indirect. I think this is an important section of the book to flag or bookmark if you ever get confused by what Gatari means by signifying chains and any other parts of his text. To me, this is the, the clearest rendering of that. That's just, that's just me though. Maybe there's other places he makes that clearer for you. Um, yeah. Um, I, I kind of want to go back to recording too. I, I mean, just, just a, another strange example uh, involving penises comes to mind. Um, I think about the men who suffer erectile dysfunction from uh, obsessive pornography viewing. The, the idea of connecting partial objects, that is masturbation with images on a screen and, and all of the sort of uh, environment that one creates with pornography creates a series of productive flows and it has its own kind of anti-production that goes with it too. A cutting off from a notion of sexuality um, uh, that that is conventional in our society. And I mean, clearly there's a sort of moral, um, uh, like uh, a moral presupposition in our worries about and in our treatment of things like erectile dysfunction, because we see it as a negative, because we see that we understand that people are not having a normal kind of sexual experience. And lump into that the the notion of being a man and the notion of um of a man being able to 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 find a woman to have sex with and the anxiety that goes with that creates this massive recording device right uh, a series of flows and breaks if you will uh that that may help us understand a little bit better the the, the kind of terms that they're working with here i like that well, i think um yeah, the example of the erectile dysfunction, talk about uh, anti-production. Um, and so I was then trying to like think through how to read that in terms of making something productive out of that still. And it seems to me like maybe the thing there is that like inside of that, there's this opportunity to be like, what the fuck am I doing? Like I've been watching porn so much, I can't even get my dick hard anymore. Like, <laughs> you know, maybe that's the productivity inside of there. Right. And, and I think it's important to um, sort of extract the, the like, like I said, the moral presupposition there, because I mean, I, I mean, at base, I mean, there's, there's a lot of ways from moral standpoint, ethical standpoint, we can critique uh, pornography, 
I mean, the exploitation of women and men and, and so forth, right? But inherently, um, the, the sexual experience uh, uh, that, that comes uh, from pornography is, um, is, is an affirmative one in some sense, but it, it can happen or get recorded in such a way that it excludes us or cuts us off from being aroused or stimulated in other ways that, that might be affirmative or important for us or that allow us to flourish in other ways. And I think from Deleuze and Gattari's perspe perspective, that's the ethical problem. When you do have this desire, for example, to uh, engage with um, someone sexually, you know, skin to skin contact, for example, the smell of another human being that then could be uh, recorded out of or, or not recorded into the pornography experience. And um, um, the, the obsession that goes with uh, like uh, with, with pornography elevates or privileges certain sensations in a way that doesn't allow us to um, connect with with other um, kinds of sexual experience. I'm getting a little lost in how you're using uh, recording here. Well, re recording in this sense means, um, I mean, think about just uh, like when when somebody engages with pornography, pornography, for example, they're creating habits and routines. They're That's they're right. deepening that groove. Yeah, I usually when when Deleuze and Guattari say recording, I this might not be accurate, but I usually think of like the concept of recording as also retroactively creating a surface on which it's recorded. Yeah, I, I think so. And I think there's much more to the like just to use my example again, the experience of viewing pornography that relates to the the pornographic tableau. It it relates to all aspects of life. I mean, just the the availability of pornography, for example. Um, the tabulation of views, the creation of pornographic individualities that then get logged on on porn websites, and they then they know how to configure their website. So the like the 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 productive tableau is much larger than the the, the pornographic tableau. Recording happens, um, I think, in in a far more expansive way than than just the individual. Let's say. Well, uh, just just as a quick note. Um... Uh, to go back to the idea that these recording services are created uh, sort of uh, before the fact, uh, which I really like. Uh, isn't that basically the concept of Sir when we're talking about the body without organs, when it's it falls back on because yeah. it does actually get created in the process of describing? That's right. Yeah, I think that's that's great. Yeah. I think we should we should talk about signifying chains. Uh, I think this is yeah. really important, and, and it, it's going to come back right. in Anti-Oedipus, and it's all over their other work. Um, and what I love about this um, paragraph and, and the relation with signifying chains is how close to Lacan they are, and what what point they'll make. Oops, and what point they'll make in the next paragraph is the actual late divergence from Lacan that they make, right? And here, the signifying chain is purely correlative with their theory, I feel, right? It being a polyvocal formation of not yet differentiated signifiers, right? It being, and, and here, when I read this, uh, this part, a jargon, an open-ended polyvocal formation, I cannot but think of multiplicities, right? <clears throat> And how they um, they work in these uh, what, what Lacan would call the symbolic relations, right? And we should really um, note that 
the notion of the signifier or the notion of the point de capiton that, that Lacan uses is not yet is not is not yet employed here, right? It doesn't appear yet, and this is why exactly it is so close to their theory. I feel. Yeah, and I think one of the things that we need to address is um, what does the word signifier here mean? Because they say, um, where is it? It's, um, oh gosh. Well, basically what they say is that the it doesn't necessarily, where is it? It doesn't signify the sign. I had it highlighted in my We'll come back to that. Anyway, the, the point being is that the notion of, of sign here. Um, you talk about how the signs don't signify themselves? The signs don't signify themselves. Yeah, that's that's what I was looking for. Why couldn't I find it? Yeah, so, um, yeah. And that these the notion of symbolic here is not reducible to word, image, or, or something like that. I mean, there's right, there right. all kinds of things that can be a sign. To me, the, 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 the word sign uh, here, kind of uh, an, a synonym for that could be like a node in a network. And, mm-hmm. and, and all kinds of things could well, be a sign. I'm what thinking happens that. is, in the fifth seminar, what is really interesting is, and it is probably mentioned by Lacan in many other texts as well, but what Lacan says, the signifier with, with the capital S, right, mm-hmm. is not only a word, it is... And that, but it also takes on a very important meaning in the subject, right? And this is what I feel we get on with the beginning of the next paragraph, right? When they, in the signifying chains, identify a certain repression that works with grounding the subject, right? To which I alluded before when I said that the, the subject is not yet grounded in this theory of signifying chains. Right. right. Yeah, so I mean talking about sex or drug use like we I see some of that happening in the the live chat right now. It's not just um the dopa like the dopamine release is in the signifying chain. The the claiming of that experience as ecstatic or pleasurable is also part of the signifying chain. Uh, there are certain partial objects, you know, whatever the fetish object is or um you know, if if we're talking about doing drugs, I mean, often there's a kind of environment in which, you know, depending on the drug user where um, the, the consumption of the drug takes place. I mean, even a cigarette break standing outside the building in the space there, that's all part of the the formation of connections and, and the, the sort of intermeshing of, of signifying chains um, in in the in the smoke break machine, if you will. Right. And maybe with this, we can, uh, I mean, I can, I can read the next paragraph. Sure. All right. <clears throat> so the disjunctions characteristic of these chains still do not involve any exclusion. However, since exclusions can arise only as a function of inhibitors and repressors that eventually determine the support and firmly define a specific personal subject. No chain is homogenous. All of them resemble, rather, a succession of characters from different alphabets in which an ideogram, a pictogram, a tiny image of an elephant passing by, or a rising sun may suddenly make its appearance. In a chain that mixes together phonemes, morphemes, etc., without combining them, 
Papa's mustache, Mama's upraised arm, a ribbon, a little girl, a cop, a shoe suddenly turned up. Each chain captures fragments of other chains from which it extracts a surplus value, just as the orchid code attracts the figure of a wasp. Both phenomena demonstrate the surplus value of a code. It is an entire system of shuntings along certain tracks and of selections by lot that bring about partially dependent aleatory phenomena bearing a close resemblance to a Markov chain. The recordings and transmissions that have come from the internal codes from the outside world from one region to another of the organism all intersect, following the endlessly ramified paths of the great disjunctive synthesis. If this constitutes a system of writing, it is a writing inscribed on the very surface of the real capillar, a strangely polyvocal kind of writing, never a biunivocalized, linearized one, a transcursive system of writing never a discursive one, a writing that constitutes the entire domain of the real inorganization of the passive syntheses, where we would search in vain for something that might be labeled the signifier. Writing, that's, writing that ceaselessly composes and decomposes the chains into signs that have nothing that impels them to become signifying. The one vocation of the sign is to produce desire, engineering it in every direction. And yeah. Yeah, the part of this paragraph that really stands out to me, especially as somebody who has worked in uh, langu language education, uh, is at the top. No chain is homogenous. And immediately I think of the English language um, and all of the derivatives of the English language. And, and even to say derivatives positions English as, as being on high and, and the other languages associated with English as being somewhere uh, on the lower part of the hierarchy. But, um, you know... Anyway, all of them resemble rather a succession of characters from different alphabets in which an ideogram, a pictogram, a tiny image of an elephant passing by, a rising sun, blah, 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 in a chain that mixes together phonemes, morphemes, etc., without combining them. Um, I want to relate that to language, just the way that in Deleuze and Guattari and other places, especially in their work on Kafka, they talk about uh, the ways in which language I mean, language uh, in, in the conventional sense is just built up uh, upon phonemes and morphemes. Uh, and then we have an understanding of grammar after that and what is standardized English grammar. But what Deleuze and Guattari suggest is that there are all kinds of offshoots of what we understand to be the standardized version of any language or any semiotic chain that represses all of the others. I mean, I think in the United States, when we think about African-American vernacular or, or what we call Ebonics, how that it shares resemblances with standard English, but it pulls from them selected pulls from standard English selectively certain terms, repurposes some of them, um, you know, to create a, a, a kind of effect that ruptures the the standard language. And um, I would say the the importance of of, of African-American vernacular and, and Ebonics in music and in comedy, for example, has created a sensibility in our culture that basically uh, challenges a, a sort of standard way of thinking about things. And this, this isn't just happening here in the United States, of course. This, this happens with um, uh, any confrontation between what we would consider to be um, a variant of a language and the mainstream language. Right, and, and doesn't this, um, what they say, and I'm really not sure whether this, whether I'm 
misquoting this, but when they say that actually no language is a major language, but uh, as opposed to this consisted of many other minor languages, right? Uh, right. And yeah, and so when now maybe what we can do is talk about languages it outside of the conventional sense of the term. There's all kinds of languages emerging all the time. I mean, just uh, the way that we relate to other peoples, uh, other things, you know, even going for a walk um, just quietly and developing a, a, a sort of mode of communication with things in, in the environment of a quiet walk can be the emergence of a minor language there. I mean, happening right. all the time experimental music i mean there's a reconfiguration of sounds um running sounds like uh, this this artist heinbach who I, I really appreciate an experimental musician he takes old uh test equipment audio test equipment and he reconfigures them to produce uh tonal music and he'll get chords out of these things he'll run them through guitar pedals and 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 all that sort of thing to create sonic landscapes uh, out of these machines that weren't initially intended to do sorts of things, creating new semiotic chains. Right. And what this, I mean, just going further back from what you've been saying right now, what this um, paragraph you've highlighted reminds me of is a kind of Derridian, right, conception of archie writing of sorts, right? It's really interesting. I wish I could have the time to, to really delve into this paragraph and juxtapose the different conceptions of writing and see the similarities between Derrida and them. But it's definitely one of the points that really grabs my interest here. But I, for me, this this is one of the things I gave a, actually a TEDx talk on a very similar topic regarding how, uh, I think I sent it to you, Craig, I'll post it a little bit later, on how signifying chains actually uh, help us determine how we're going to act inside of uh, virtual reality and inside of games, and how you can play with uh, how people deal with signifiers inside of those. One of the things I really like about this is when they talk about it bearing the language that's created, bearing a close resemblance to a Markov chain. Uh, it's uh, it's a really interesting way to think about it because ultimately Markov chains are actually probabilistic uh, when they're developed. They're literally created to be very similar to if you have an iPhone, uh, the predictive text feature, just constantly typing what is should come next in theory. And so if we're talking about things like that, each chain captures fragments of other chains where it extracts a surplus value, just as the ORCID code attracts the figure of a wasp. Uh, the, the Markov chains and the things that are expected of us to be saying next, the, the assumptions of that probability is a production in itself. I've, 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 I love this, this section so very much. Um, but just to mention really quick, the signifying chain, because it's a Lacanian thing, I, I posted uh, earlier the Perlin letter, but um, uh, he talks about this uh, significantly, that this signifying chain, his origination of it comes uh, sort of uh, his version of the Oedipal, and he plays with that with Freud. Uh, the first place we have a signifying chain is uh, when the... Uh, Name of the father signifiers, someone correct me if I get this wrong. The name of the fire signif father signifiers are actually substituted for those uh, initial primal desires for the mother. And that repression is where we first get our signifying chain. Uh, again, talking, bringing their talk about anti-production 
uh, sort of full circle, that first act of repression is what actually gives us signifying chains. And its only thing is actually to insert itself and uh, affect people's uh, utterances, the way that they talk, uh, the, the psychic fabric of why a person says what they say is uh, very much uh, in it's book three of uh, Jacques Lacan's seminars. Uh, worth reading. Interesting stuff. So there we go. Sorry, I was unmuted or I was muted. Are we at the bottom of 39? We are. Okay. No, go for it, Craig. Okay, I'll just do this uh, short paragraph here. These chains are the locus of continual detachments, kisses on every hand that are valuable in and of themselves and above all must not be filled in. This is thus the second characteristic of the machine, breaks that are a detachment, which must not be confused with breaks that are slicing off. <clears throat> the latter have to do with continuous fluxes and are related to partial objects. Schizes have to do with heterogeneous change. And just as their basic unit use detachable segments or mobile stocks resembling building blocks or flying bricks, we must conceive of each brick as having been launched from a distance and as being composed of heterogeneous elements, containing with it not only an inscription with signs from different alphabets, but also various figures, plus one or several straws, and perhaps a corpse. Cutting into the flows involves detachment of something from a chain, and the partial objects of production presuppose stocks of material or recording bricks within the coexistence of the interaction of all the syntheses. Yes. Um. Yeah, just just this little paragraph ends up being the most dense. Right? Yeah, I, actually, I think one of the, the interesting things to point out about this paragraph is the notion of mobility, mobile blocks. This comes up a lot in their work later on, especially when they talk about debt. Um, they talk about debt in the society of uh, pre-modern societies as being mobile blocks of debt. You could be indebted to somebody, but you could be relieved of that debt in, in a way that demonstrates that the debt was finite. Uh, with, the, with the institution of the creditor-debtor relationship uh, with Nietzsche um, and a human being's uh, uh, wish to be immortal and to be like a god, the, um, the, the consequence or the, the, the trade-off is that we are infinitely indebted. So for those of us who are Christians, for example, uh, I'm not, but if you are, um, you are indebted to God until death um, to, to claim Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And basically, all of your, your, your entire being is conditioned by that debt. Um, and here, uh, with desire, the situation of desire, as it actually is, prior to the representation that is Jesus Christ, uh, debt is mobile. It's finite. It's not until we cross this threshold into the despotic regime of the face, into the despotic regime of salvation and of, of the despot, uh, his or herself, that we have this, this infinite debt rather than a mobile debt. And sometimes they refer to it as blocks of debt finite blocks of debt versus infinite debt. <clears throat> and, 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 and to just attach to that, I, I know I'm getting off the page a little bit here, but the notion of desire 
when it comes to the law, the notion of desire when it comes to immortality, um, infinity. Um, what they're saying is that desire is tentative. It's metastable. It, it, it flows. It, and therefore has, has these sort of finite blocks and bricks. But there are notions of, of signifiers. There, there are signifiers such as, as the signifier of Christ that attempts to condition desire to be subservient to an infinite debt. So one thing I'd like to mention is the idea of microgenesis. Um, I, I, I've ex described this before, which is that in Gestalt um, research that was done in Germany, uh, there was a there was part of that that looked at how do how do Gestalts form, and and what they found when they did their research was that Gestalt figure when it forms, it it it. it before the figure kind of like pops out and takes whole, it takes a specific form. There's all of these preforms that occur, and and that the preforms of the gestalt can be very different from the gestalt itself. And so and so basically, what you get is a a, a chain of prefigurations before you get to the gestalt, and they're all they're they're like broken up in relationship to each other and all very different from each other. And th this paragraph reminds me of that idea of microgenesis. Uh, to whom is that, uh, that idea attributed? Uh, I'll put something in the stream. I'll find the book and put it in the stream. Okay. Uh, should we move on? I think we can, we might be able to get done with this. Right. Yeah, we should. Okay. Uh, maybe Andrew or Brooks, do you want to pick yep. up? Yep. I mean, I can. <clears throat> um, how could part of a flow be drawn off without a fragmentary detachment taking place within the code that comes to inform the flow? When we noted a moment ago that the schizo is at the very limit of the decoded flows of desire, we meant that he was at the very limit of the social codes, where the despotic signifier destroys all the chains, linearizes them, bi-univocalizes them, and uses the bricks as so many immobile units of the construction of an imperial Great Wall of China. <laughs> but the schizo continually detaches them, continually works them loose and carries them off in every direction in order to create a new polyvocity that is the code of desire. Every composition, and also every decomposition, uses mobile bricks as the basic unit. Diaschisis and diaspasis, as Monaco put it. Either a lesion is, either lesions spreads along fibers that link it to the other regions and thus give rise at a distance to a phenomena that are incomprehensible from a purely mechanistic but not machinic point of view, or else a humoral disturbance brings on a shift in nervous energy and creates broken fragmented paths within the sphere of instincts. These bricks or blocks are the essential parts of desiring machines from the point of view of the recording process. They're once com component parts and products of the process of decomposition that are spatially localized only at certain moments by contrast with the nervous system, which is a great chronogenous machine, a melody producing machine of the music, music box type with a non-spatial localization. What makes Monaco and Morg, Morg's study 
an unparalleled one going far beyond the entire Jacksonist philosophy that originally inspired it, is the theory of bricks and blocks, their detachment and fragmentation, and above all, what such a theory presupposes, the introduction of desire into neurology. <clears throat> yeah, what's kind of interesting to me, and uh, I kind of researched this Konstantin uh, von Monaco guy, and uh, as they say, he was really influenced by John Jackson. They were all uh, psychiatrists or uh, neurologists or philosophers of the mind. Some, 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 uh, yeah, some derivative of that. And diaskisis is actually a kind of neuronal tempor temporal shock, which can be uh, later rebuilt and returned back to normal. But what happens with their theory, actually, <clears throat> as Gudus and Gattari playfully say, it introduces desire into neurology. And what they mean here is I think their their biggest other enemy, let's say, or adversary beyond psychoanalysis is actually this um, mechanistic neurology which uh, appropriates everything to, to um, parts of the brain and certain schisms in, in the brain, right? Which they're directly opposed to, obviously. Yeah, this is the first time reading this that that work has stood out to me. It's probably one of those things they got filtered in, in my first and second read, you know, because they have so many mentions of, of these interesting figures. Um, the one that does stand out to me, though, is the, the, the undercurrent of Kafka at the beginning here. Um, when they talk about the Great Wall of China, they're also talking about his story on the Great Wall of China. So if this is something that stands out to you. I, uh, listening, I would just say, refer to the Kafka book. There's a whole section on uh, mobile and finite blocks uh, in relation to the story of the Great Wall. Um, I, I also, really quick, uh, one of the things I liked, I was trying to figure out uh, and read up on Monacau and Morg's study and what they did. Uh, Monacau specifically, I found it uh, a little too poetic that he's actually the guy who discovered the uh, specific nerves that actually connect Broca's and Wernicke's speech areas. So the parts of the brain that read and understand speech and the part of the brain that speaks, he's the guy who literally figured out the connection between them and what is what does that. So oh, cool, which, which felt a little appropriate uh, given the references in here. There, the, the term in here that we should have our own is, is a new one in, in anti-Oedipus. Uh, maybe they mentioned it earlier. Is bi-univocalization or bi-univocalize? Mm -hmm. uh, it has been mentioned, but not extensively. What does that mean? <laughs> right? I remember uh, my, my first encounter with uh, Deleuze and Gattari, um, just seeing this quite a bit. I think because, uh, I mean, Gattari uses it quite a bit in his solo work, but... Um, here it says, uh, we meant that he was at the very limit of the social codes, where a despotic signifier destroys all the chains, linearizes them, bi-univocalizes them, and uses the bro bricks as so many immobile units for the construction of an imperial great wall. So what they're saying is that there's a way in which this fragmentary flow of codes can get lined up underneath or behind a, a signifier with a capital S in a way that it destroys all the other potential tangents desire that can take, effectively linearizing them. And what does bi-univocalize mean here? I, 
as I understand it, it's basically the construction of this exclusive pole between the flow of desire, the subject, and the signifier to which everything's subordinated. That's very interesting. I was thinking uh, when you asked the question of what bind vocalization is, I was thinking about our first the discussions when we, um, and you extensively mentioned poles, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it was the, the, in connection to binaries, I think, the constant uh, going from one end of the pole to another. Mm -hmm. right. Um, can, can I mention about uh, univocalization? Um, yeah. uh, this is the thing that Badiou, uh, in his book, complains about Deleuze. Um, you know, univocalization means that, um, you know, being has different kinds of, um, of meanings, and, um, and they can be very different from each other. But univocalization means that... Um, you're talking about being, you know, whenever you say is, you're talking about being no matter what the, 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 the disparity between the different kinds of being there are. So by univocalization, I mean, I'm just guessing, means if you've got two things, they really mean the same thing. Well, it's, yeah. it's, it's sort of that. It, this goes back to um, the way that they talk about the semiotic chains uh, and all of that mixed with a mathematical concept of biunivocal uh, uh, relations. And the idea is that if you have two sets of, of all kinds of different mathematic crap, uh, you have two sets, uh, set A, set B, uh, if if the sets are biunivocal, it means that they each share one element, so they 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 cross over. So you may have a connection in one single place along the entire group of both sets biunivocal relations. Oh, okay, that's really interesting. Uh, so so when they're talking about this, they're talking about almost. I think they're referring back to uh, the semiotic chains uh, being biunivocal, where uh, we may have two semiotic chains that are effectively in in mass. Again, none of the specific symbols or semiotics in the chain have any meaning unto themselves, but the chain is actually what gives us greater meaning in the Lacanian sense. If they each share one specific thing, we actually have the ability to see them as similar. It's biunivocal. Yeah. Uh, is how uh, I've Yes, it's essentially two chains, one shared sign. Yeah, and it seems that it always has this sort of pejorative tone associated with it when Deleuze and Gattar use it as if it's a reduction of the two chains to the one signifier, if if that makes sense. So similar to like being photoplied, right? With the, oh. um, the psychoanalyst would take uh, a sign to like little Hans, I think, for example. And, uh, what's an example from um, a thousand or Antiochus, where they take an example and then photoplies it. Would that sort of be like by univocalization? So they take one sign and connect it to the um, photopole. I mean, I, I didn't quite catch that. I, I, I kind of caught that. Um, I mean, I think one of the, the very basic ways and relevant ways to think about it is just edipalization itself. The, the reference of, like, I mean, nobody's denying in, in Deleuze and Gattari that the parental relationship bears upon the, the construction of any metastable human subject. But when 
when all uh, when all flights of desire are referred back to um, the mother or the father figure, that's that's problematic. It, it's a reduction of all the terms in any signifying chain to that one thing that putatively connects all of them. Mm-hmm. Shall we continue? We're almost done. All right. Maybe you can do the next one. Sure. Uh, The third type of interruption or break characteristic of the desiring machine is the residual break or residuum, which produces a subject alongside the machine functioning as a part adjacent to the machine. And if this subject has no specific or personal identity, if it traverses the body without organs, without destroying its indifference, it is because it is not only a part that is peripheral to the machine, but also a part that is itself divided into parts that correspond to the detachments from the chain and the removals of the flow brought about by the machine. This, thus, this subject consumes and consummates each of the states through which it passes and is born of each of them anew, continuously emerging from them as a part made up of parts, each one of which completely fills up the body without organs in the space of an instant. This is what allows Lacan to postulate and describe in detail an interplay of elements that is more machinic than etymological. Parer, to procure, separer, to separate, and um, my French is terrible, to engender oneself. (laughs) At the same time, he points out that the intensive uh, nature of this interplay, the part has nothing to do with the whole. It performs its role all by itself. In this case, only after the subject has partitioned itself does it proceed to its uh, parturition. Uh, That is why the subject can procure what is of particular concern to it here, a state that would label a legitimate status within society. Nothing in the life of any subject would sacrifice a very large part of its interests. Yeah, I mean, the the, the the descending point to me here is is, um, Lacan's uh, conceptualization of... uh, Procuring, separating, and engendering seem to have its correlate in, in Deleuze and Gattari's production of productions, the production of disjunctions, and then the production of a conjunction. I'm not sure about these terms. I, I mean, I, I don't remember them encountering them in, uh, in, in Lacan's terminology. Maybe it's some, some minor detail. But what stands out to me is this uh, subject, subject who consumes and consummates, consummates each of the states through which it passes, <clears throat> and this unborn of each of them anew, continuously emerging from them as a part made up of parts. And this goes back, I feel, <clears throat> the, the what they're saying is I feel that the subject uh, acts or acts out completely like a machine, right, which uh, builds off of other machines, which in turn, as I said, builds off of some other machines. Right? And this is exactly what the subject does when he passes through the states of his uh, ontogenesis, as maybe Samantha would call it. Mm-hmm. Right? I'm, I'm really struck by the, the sort of ethical strand that runs through this paragraph. And here where ethical means... There's a, a way in which we can view subjectivity as a, an acceptance and rejection of various states of being. Um, like, I mean, for example, 
uh, anybody who's battling any sort of identity issue is going to have, I mean, I mean, I think of an adolescent teenager, you know, for example, you know, at, at a time where identity becomes currency, you know, in their social group, it, it's about making a choice between am I this or that? And we're talking about this, this, this third uh, synthesis here, the, the engendering of something, the engendering of an identity. Um, and there's a way in which the, the rejection of certain aspects of the way that we're produced can be um, the negative ethical move in delivery, meaning um, our failure to embody or engender or affirm some aspect of ourself is a cutting off of ourselves from a productive aspect of who we are. Um, and yeah, to me, like that, that's kind of like the interesting stuff when it comes to Deleuze and Gattari's ethics. I, I think if anybody's interested in writing a paper or, or doing like a video essay at some point um, on, on Deleuze, Gattari and identity, this, this is something to really lock into here. Mm-hmm. Shall we get, we're almost done. Why don't you take it away, Andrew? Right. Like all the other breaks, the subjective break is not at all an indication of a lack or need, but on the contrary, a share that falls to the subject as a part of a whole, income that comes its way as something left over. Here again, how bad a model, the Oedipal model of castration is. That is because breaks or interruptions are not the result of an analysis, rather, in and of themselves, they're syntheses. Syntheses produce divisions. Let us consider, for example, the milk the baby throws up when it burps. It is at one and the same time the restitution of something that has been levied from the associated flux, the reproduction of the process of detachment from the signifying chain, and a residuum that constitutes the subject's share of the whole. The desiring machine is not a metaphor. It is what interrupts and is interrupted in accordance with the three modes. The first mode has to do with the connective synthesis synthesis, and mobilizes libido as withdrawal energy. The second has to do with the disjunctive synthesis and mobilizes the woman as detachment energy. The third has to do with the conjunctive synthesis and mobilizes voluptus as residual energy. It is these three aspects that make the process of design and production at once the production of production, the production of recording, and the production of consumption. To withdraw, apart from the whole, to detach, to have something left over, is to produce and to carry out real operations of desire in the material world. And here, even though I don't recall reading anti-production anywhere, the last sentence I mean, could have just used it <laughs> instead of everything else because I read anti-production here and everything that's stated, right? Produced yeah. as an offshoot and then, right? Well, it, in conjunction with I with what I mentioned earlier about the production of recording, whenever I see the production of recording, I think anti-production is implied um, in the sense that mm-hmm. in any way flows get coded, uh, there's a way in which a flow is not coded, right? And often uh, it's it's coded in such a way as to repress the uh, the potentiality or the potential 
for another flow to emerge or for another break to emerge. I really like this paragraph. I think it, if we were just to read this one instead of the whole section, it, it would make a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, it, it's something they rarely do, I feel, is uh, make uh, make one of the last paragraphs a kind of uh, recapitulation of everything they've said. But here, it, it works fine. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, it, and it's clear at this point, there's one more section in chapter one that they're kind of winding down the discussion of right, right. the fundamentals here. Um, and once, I, and once, oh, go ahead. Is that park bench? Is that park bench? Yeah, yeah. I was just going to say, I really, this uh, rereading this section has been really helpful for me. And I think particularly, it's making me think about the, this question of recording, the discussion we were having earlier. It's just been sort of it formed to me earlier when I was reading um, that I feel like one of the things that we, we've gotten caught up on in our discussion is the idea of recording versus a recording surface. And one thing that occurred to me, especially with this last part where they talk about to withdraw apart from the whole, to detach, to have something left over is to produce and to carry out real operations of desire in the material world. Something that was kind of uh, an aha moment for me in thinking about all this was uh, the way that like search engines function. I don't know if everyone is aware, but we tend to think of something like Google as this big box or this place, this, this room that contains everything else. But and, and when you can't find something on Google, you're like, what? It doesn't exist. How is it not? It's not there. It's not real. But fundamentally, all that's happening and what Google started out as, like all search engine, is they have things that are called spiders, these like crawler bots that just go through the, the entire internet and just ping different servers and just make connections with them. And I, I, as I was thinking about that, the idea of withdrawing apart if you just ping a server and then you end that connection, that's a form of, that's a kind of desiring machine. But what these bots, these spiders do is they ping that connection. They leave a record of what they've pinged. There's the surplus, the leftover that's been withdrawn from what they've done. And in that process, you know, in and of itself, that doesn't constitute a search engine. You just have a lot of files that just have information in them. But through all this process of these spiders crawling all over the net, pinging different servers, leaving these, you know, leftovers of what they find, uh, you end up it, you know, putting that into a database that kind of becomes the recording surface with all these, you know, they, they said on that page 38, the, the data, the bits of information recorded and their transmission form a grid of disjunctions of a type that differs from the previous connections. So they're, they're put into some kind of, you know, say pseudo organization at that point. And then eventually we get this thing called Google or a search engine, which feels like, you know, that old point we've made many times of this miraculating event where Google finds things and it knows where things are when fundamentally it's, you know, it's not, it's not that it contains things. It's that it's, you know, this, this thing that they said also on the previous page on page 40 that it's, or sorry, not yeah. Page 40 where they say the, it produces a subject alongside the machine functioning as a part adjacent to the machine. That really helped me a lot in thinking about recording and thinking about the ontogenesis we've been talking about is that is the idea of, this this residuum that gets produced, how could that residuum lay claim to everything else, well, yeah. and, and simultaneously be a part of that thing? You know, it's it's like a box that's labeled the box of all boxes. You know, I'm pointing to everything else, but uh, mm. just I don't know if it helps. But the search engine thing really helped me frame a lot of these things because it's literally made up of all these tiny little machines, and you know, it, in and of itself, it's a way you can kind of read the different stages of the connective synthesis, the, you know, the conjunctive synthesis.
because there's all these things in there. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that helps at all, but that was, that was a helpful metaphor. In my mind. No, that's, that's an awesome way to think about it. And um, would I be correct in elaborating that um, these, these uh, like the spiders that you were talking about or the, the, the mode of recording might have built into it something we would think of as being a, a limitation or an inherent limitation, but that's just the way the recording apparatus was set up. And it could be set up in such a way as not to catch um, certain data points or certain structures, or it just might, it might not be in the recording apparatus and therefore, therefore is, in, in a sense, either repressed or left out, made to seem Yeah, I think that's exactly the, yeah. yeah, that's exactly the point. And in a way, if you think yeah. about when they say, how is it that earlier we were getting stuck on that phrase, you know, the body without organs produces. But I think all that's saying is this as a byproduct, because you're right, there's, there has to be a moment of repression and in, in the search engine example, it's that all this mass of bits and data and information that are recorded in the capacitive sense and that the, the information is like pinged and then left there, there has something has to make sense of it and sort of arbitrarily decide how to process it. So you get, a, you know, a UI that makes sense. There's results that are excluded. You know, Google makes the political decisions. There's all kinds of things that determine, what, you know, how, what the ranking of things, depending on how they've been viewed and by whom and who pays for ads and all these different things. So, yeah, that there's there's an aspect of it that isn't just you're naturally seeing the products of all these things, but that there's a, there is a repression and therefore a creation of identity out of that. And it made me think as well, I mean, just this, this concept of the index, like even in a book, you know, we, we look at the, the index page and we think of it as, oh, this, this, all the information is contained in here, but it's, it's just another page, you know, in the book or like on, on Linux. I remember the first time I realized that a, a folder is actually just a file. You know, and I was like, what is the, what? That, no, folders contain things. They're supposed, there's things supposed to be inside of them. But the point is this, this idea, even of the bi-univocal thing, that the index, in order to become an index, has to deposit bits of itself and everything else so that they then refer back to it, you know, as, as an or kind of document or something. So I don't know if that helps, right. but I've just no, been that's thinking awesome. about this the whole yeah. time. And, yeah. and the, this, because it, even though it's, you know, more from the mechanical side, I think it really mirrors all these different processes that we've been talking about, especially literally with the, you know, if you look up crawler bots, we can throw a link in the discord later, but they, there's literally all these machines that are constantly crawling the net in order to create the feeling of something which has everything else inside of it. It doesn't, it's just another page. Google is just another web page. It doesn't actually have anything in it, but it, it has deposited itself in all these other pages. And now, you know, that's so, so advanced that you have like, you know, special widgets and things. You even have uh, something called, what is it? Robots.txt. That's like websites that don't want to be crawled in a particular way, put that inside of their websites, you know, server files so that, that the spiders not see that and they stop. So anyway, I just wanted to throw that in there. Cause no, I thought I'm glad you did. Um, in fact, um, I'd like to venture an analogy that um, the, the whole notion of, um, this could be a great paper, bourgeois individuality as a kind of spider, in the sense that we can set up co certain kinds of subjectivity to seek out potentials uh, to achieve freedom or liberation in the social field through the lens of bourgeois individuality. But that concept fails to capture certain aspects of our social life and certain ways in which we're being repressed um, <clears throat> that 
then get interpreted in in very reactionary ways. If, if there's only a certain kind of political lens that we maintain, uh, like uh, whatever, however we define our lens for freedom, for example, there's so much that might be lost. Um, particularly, our critique of capitalism is is one of the first things that comes to mind. And therefore, all the data, quote unquote, that's retrieved by the bourgeois individual subject can. It's not that it's misinterpreted. <laughs> but the interpretation has an inherent limitation. Um, I mean, there's a, there's a political question at base here. Like, is there something of bourgeois individuality that we don't want to lose in moving forward as a political project because it has been successful in allowing massive swathes of, of the global population to achieve a certain level of freedom? But there is something left out of that lens um, that I think you know, times like these are demanding of, uh, you know, in terms of um, effectuating a paradigm shift globally. That's a pregnant question and a pregnant yeah. pause. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just dropped the mic. Can I just add to, I just was re Please. reading page 39 and it seems like I, the, the other reason I, I, I like the search engine example is because they're, they're talking about different alphabets, ideograms, pictograms, tiny elephant, rising sun, you know, to, to sort of communicate the lack of intention in these chains of, of, of signif uh, signs that there's not like, there's not, it doesn't discriminate between kinds of pages. It's just taking all of these things at once and then later has to make, you know, judgments about them. Yeah, I mean, that that's cool. That That's not a topic that that's a go to for me as as a thinker. But the way that you framed it makes me very interested. In it. And so if you have links or something, please dump them on us. I'm just reading this, um, this whole first chapter. I really feel how much of this has gone into the first chapter of a thousand plateaus in, in the guise of the rhizome, right? Because the rhizome in a way and what Parkman was saying about the crawler bots, it all reminds me of it, right? And every concept we see here is indirectly or directly incorporated in the conception of the rhizome, right? The way it functions, the way it moves, the way it thinks, and whatever. The way it associates. Everything is uh, going on in this paradigm of the first chapter of Anti-Oedipus. Yeah, we're about eight minutes shy of two o'clock here pacific standard time so i'm sorry i'm not talking more i think we're having a long debate in the chat about whether it means univocal or uh, it's just an awful we're having a just the worst semantic argument i think in the chat right now about parts of this chapter because their their usage of some words is a little archaic and it's tough to sort of reproduce right so mm. Yeah, I mean, it's a term that I I struggled with when when getting into this stuff, and you know, I'll admit that that I don't have the firmest grasp on it. You know, every time it pops up, I'm like, okay, what does it mean in this context? Do I have the concept right? So I think uh, I think our what we're coming to to understand is that bi-univocal is a weird, quirky word from a specific time in the world of French mathematics. And what we're actually talking about is bijective functions, which is another mathematical term. Yes, this is very dry, more dry than you probably expected. Um, French mathematics. Yes, it's a, it's a very particularly odd term, but it looks like bijective is the word that they actually intend to use here, and it's an issue with translation. 
So I want to just give a thanks to Lou for finding that and putting that through. It looks like that's where we're landing. Could, could I just mention one thing before we go, which is that the, um, you know, it talks about synthesis produces divisions and in um, difference in repetition, they have one of the key ideas is internal difference as distinguished from external difference. And uh, internal difference tends to be hierarchical, whereas external difference seems is kind of horizontal type difference. And so this synthesis produces divisions reminds me of internal difference in difference and repetition. Can, can someone expand on that a little bit for me? Because it literally went right over my head. At all? Anyone? Yeah, I, I, you know, to be honest, my my familiarity is um, surprisingly low um, with uh, when it comes to difference and repetition. I've only really worked on the third chapter. Um, but that.